0: Well, thank you um, for being here this morning. Uh, before we get, go any further, uh, let us take a moment of reflection uh, for the families in El Paso, Texas and Dayton, Ohio uh, who are grieving and instead of celebrating life, they are now in the midst of planning funerals for their loved ones. So if we could, just for a few moments.
1: What starts here changes the world. Well, I've got to admit, I kind of like it. What starts here changes the world. We are the music makers, and we are the dreamers of dreams. The average American will meet 10,000 people in their lifetime.
0: I was handcuffed to another man from another tribe whose language I did not speak. Don't think.
1: But if every one of you changed the lives of just 10 people, and each one of those people changed the lives of another 10 people, and another 10. We did not know each other, and we could not speak
0: to each other, because if we could have spoken to each other, we might have been able to figure out what was happening to us. To
2: every politician who is taking donations from the NRA, I believe them when they said they were sleeping on concrete floors. I believe them. Children being separated from their parents in front of an American flag. I believe them.
1: And you can change the entire population of the world, eight billion people. And if we are gonna figure out what was happening to us, you not have been able to prevent it. If you think it's hard to change the lives of 10 people, change their, change lives, their lives forever. Lives. Well, that didn't happen, and here we are. I believe these women. You're wrong.
0: I feel extremely lucky to to be here with, with all of you fighting for justice, for equality, for the right for us to equally exist in this country.
1: So, what starts here can indeed change the world. But the question is, what will the world look like after you change it?
2: Welcome to Public Access America. Make a stand. I
0: know I did. Thank you very much. And may God bless us. And may God bless us. Thank you. Um, I welcome you to Mother Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church, a place that has taken a stance against the injustices of slavery a place that has taken a stance against Jim Crow, a place that has taken a stance against segregation, a place that has taken a stance, and always takes a stance against hatred, a place where over four years ago, nine people's lives were taken at the hand of a white supremacist. It is a place that continues to take a stand against hatred and racism and gun violence and white supremacy, against injustice and bigotry. It's a place of forgiveness and healing, a place of love, strength, and courage. Mother Emanuel knows all too well what it means to suffer at the hands of hatred and white supremacy and bigotry. And today, unlike any other day, we need leaders to stand against gun violence, by supporting the bills that are out there. We need leaders to speak out against hatred, bigotry, racism, and we always welcome leaders who are able and who are ready to do just that. So today, we welcome a leader who is doing just that, and it gives me great pleasure to introduce and to present Senator Cory
2: Booker. Thank you. Good to see everyone this morning, and good morning to you. I want to thank uh, Reverend Manning uh, for opening his uh, sanctuary today. We're here this morning in the wake of yet another act of hatred in America. But I come here today because of love, the kind of love I learned about in church growing up. The kind of courageous love of people who could love those who hated them, who despised and cursed them. A heroic love that pushed people to march, knowing they could be beaten to board buses, knowing that they could be bombed to join with others, to sit in, knowing that they could be dragged to the ground, kicked and spit, and sent to jails and hospitals a love fueled by multiracial, multi-ethnic coalitions that share a commitment to the common cause and singular destiny of this nation, a radical love that rejects the sinister and dangerous delusion of otherness, a delusion that divides, that weakens, that pits American against American to our own collective peril. The kind of love, this kind of love, is a love that demands honesty. Because we all know in both our public and our private lives that real love demands the truth. It requires us to admit when we are wrong to be vulnerable about our mistakes and our contradictions, and to be willing to question what we sometimes hold sacred. This is a lesson I have learned over and over again in my own life, with my own frailties. And to love our country in this moment means that we have to step outside of our comfort zones and confront that which is in ourselves. This is a moment that calls for us to ask hard questions and genuinely then seek the answers. We need to be honest about not just who we are, but who we have been for generations and generations in this nation. And that means we go back to the beginning and we need to acknowledge that the very founding of our country was an act of profound contradiction. Those who sought the most profound and glorious freedom in so many ways for so many people also perpetuated the very opposite. Bigotry was written into our founding documents. Native Americans, in our Declaration of Independence, referred to as savages. In our Constitution, black people are fractions of human beings. White supremacy has always been a problem in our American story. If not always at the surface, then lurking not so far beneath it. We have seen it from slave masters who stole and pillaged black bodies for profit to demagogues throughout generations who stoked racist and anti-immigrant hatred, often for votes, and then enshrine this bigotry into our laws. And yes, racist violence has always been a part of the American story. Never more so than in times of transition and times of rapid social change. We have seen it from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement. From the red summer of 100 years ago to, Charlottesville, from the lynching of people of Mexican descent in Porvenir, Texas 101 years ago to the massacre targeting Latinx people in El Paso, Texas this past Saturday. To say this is to speak the truth plainly because without the truth, there can be no reconciliation. James Baldwin wrote in The Fire Next Time that it is the innocence which constitutes the crime. Silence in the face of these injustices is a choice. To be passive is to be complicit. To ignore hate is to empower it. It is to fall back on that easy, false virtue of tolerance. To proudly claim that we are a nation of tolerance is no great aspiration. Tolerance suggests that if you disappear off the face of the earth, I would be no better or worse off because I was just tolerating you and your difference like I tolerate a cold or a headache. We are not called to tolerate injustice, we are called to combat it. We are not called to tolerate each other. We are called to love one another. So we must acknowledge as a country that as much as white supremacy manifests itself in dangerous and deadly acts of terror, it is perpetrated by what is too often a willful ignorance or dangerous tolerance of its presence in our society. It manifests itself in a criminal justice system that arrests blacks at three times the rate of whites for drug-related crimes, despite virtually no difference between whites and blacks in the frequency of dealing or using drugs. It manifests itself in an immigration system that targets Latinx migrants fleeing violence and allows us to see them so much as the other that we dehumanize them, we separate families, we put children in cages nursing women or pregnant women on concrete floors. It manifests itself in a healthcare system that disproportionately fails Black and Brown Americans, that dismisses the pain of Black women with deadly consequences. And where undocumented people in our nation are afraid to seek care in a crisis because they fear deportation. And the twisted irony of this poison is it's corrosive. It hurts the very people it actually even claims to represent. Think about this, that white supremacy allows political leaders to promise to build the wall while not building hospitals, schools, or infrastructure, critical for the success of all Americans. It talks about the invasion of immigrants while allowing the deadly opioids to invade our communities, kill our children, lower the life expectancy of Americans and white men in particular. And it creates a dangerous delusion that some amongst us are outside our moral concern, that we don't have to care about those others. We don't have to think about them that they should express their gratitude simply to be here, an idea that some Americans can even be a threat to other Americans just by existing, when in reality, the story of America, the truth of our nation, is that we share a common cause, a common purpose, that there is only one singular American destiny. As a political strategy, weaponizing hatred can be effective. It often seems easy. Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, homophobia, xenophobia, misogyny, these tactics aren't a new perversion of our politics. They've been ingrained in our politics since our founding. Generations of politicians have used fear of the other for political gain, and that is certainly the case today. Hate crimes in America are increasing. Anti-Semitism and Islamophobia are on the rise. The majority of terrorist attacks in this country since 9-11 have been perpetrated by right-wing extremists here at home, and the majority of those have been white supremacists. And these acts of hatred do not happen in a vacuum. They are harvested only once they have been planted. Galatians 6:7 reads, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. You reap what you sow. The act of anti-Latino, anti-immigrant hatred we witnessed this past weekend did not start with the hand that pulled the trigger. It did not begin when a single white supremacist got into his car to travel 10 hours to kill as many human beings as he could. It was planted in fertile soil because the contradictions that have shadowed this country since its founding remain a a part of our body politic. It was sowed by those who spoke the same words the El Paso murderer did, warning of an invasion. It was sowed by those who spoke of an infestation of disgusting cities, rats and rodents, talking about majority-minority communities. It was sowed by those who've drawn an equivalence between neo-Nazis and those who protest them. It was sowed from the highest office in our land where we see in tweets and rhetoric, hateful words that ultimately endanger the lives of people in our country, people of color, immigrants, of us all. But let's be clear, our work is not complete by calling out the shortcomings of our leaders. It is harder, but it is necessary to recognize the decisions we collectively make every day that perpetrate this dangerous reality. Each person, each generation, has a decision to make. Do you want to combat or do you want to contribute to our collective advancement or through inaction or worse to our collective retrenchment? Do you want to contribute to our progress or through apathy and indifference to the violence that threatens to tear us asunder? That is the challenge of our generation today. It is the collective crossroads we are at. People's very lives are in the balance. And to be frank, the future of our country hangs in the balance. The character and the culture of who we are hangs in the balance. This is the crossroads, which is why we can't let these conversations devolve into the impotent simplicity of who is or isn't a racist. Because of the answer to the question do racism and white supremacy exist, is yes. Then the real question isn't who is or isn't a racist, but who is and isn't doing something about it. This is a question that has a deep moral resonance. It's not enough to say I'm not a racist. We must be anti-racism because there's no neutrality in this fight. You are either an agent of justice or you are contributing to the problem. Addressing this, and we must understand this, addressing this is not an act of charity or philanthropy. It is an issue of national security. It is an issue of patriotism. It is an issue of love. And we can't begin to express that love unless we have a real conversation, that we need to be first changing our laws. Dr. King once said that, I quote, it may be true that the law cannot make a man love me, but it can keep him from lynching me. It may be true that the law cannot change the heart, but it can restrain the heartless. We have the power to act. And we can act to legislate safety, even if we cannot legislate love. We must act to prevent people who should not have guns from getting them. And that includes Congressman Jim Clyburn's legislation to close the loophole that enabled one man to take nine souls from this very congregation. We must act to get the weapons of war off our streets, out of our grocery stores, our bars, our temples, and our churches, and our schools by banning assault weapons once and for all. And and look, this is common sense. We've done it for cars. We can do it for guns. We must require federal licensing for guns in America. It is a common sense policy and one that we know from the evidence and the data will actually save lives. And we've got to go further. We must require that the Department of Justice, Homeland Security, and the FBI conduct assessments of the domestic terrorist threats that are posed by white supremacists to take this more seriously, to act on the threat, and to publicly and transparently report annually to Congress and the public on these threats. We must require the FBI to dramatically change and improve reporting of hate crimes and work with local law enforcement to establish policies, to to focus on training, to focus on how to identify and investigate and report these crimes that threaten our security and safety with chilling regularity. We must change our laws, but I can repeat, we must also confront our past. The truth is, there is another story we can tell about our country, a better story. Not one that ignores our mistakes or accommodates our past failures. And not one that just glorifies our history or or, or that puts forth this so-called great man history of our country. We can tell a story about who we have been without the crutch of illusions or covering over the pain or the wretchedness, and instead tell a story of the greatness of our country and who we can be together, who we have been in overcoming this, because America has shown greatness not because of the absence of violent bigotry and white supremacy, but because of our efforts together to overcome it. In truth, ours is the story of the faith we have had in one another, how we have formed, through courage and love, multiracial, multi-religious, multi-ethnic coalitions, to affirm our most sacred of civic virtues, to affirm that common cause and to fight for that common singular destiny that is the American destiny. Ours is the story of abolitionists black and white, who together organized for freedom, knowing, in the words of our beloved Toni Morrison, that the function of freedom is to free somebody else. Right. story of the women who organized for the right to vote, multiracial coalitions, and the men who stood, worked, and allied with them. Ours is the story of workers, immigrants, and native-born who joined together to organize and end child labor and create the 40-hour work week. Ours is the story of civil rights activists, a rainbow coalition of Americans from every race and every religion joining together who marched and sat in and stood up against segregation and equality for all people who invested themselves in the idea and understanding that we need each other. This is the story of our nation that we must tell, not the absence of racism and bigotry and anti-Semitism, but the power of what happens when we come together across the lines that divide us to affirm the ties that bind us and work to create a more beloved community in our nation. This is the story of this sanctuary, this church of faith and fellowship, of the Bible verse that speaks to our civic gospel, that is said here in churches like this all across the country, that whenever two or three are gathered together, he is in the midst. That's the ideals we hail, e pluribus unum, one nation under God, indivisible. From the very beginning, the story of this church has been a story about the power of that kind of faith in God and in one another. When this sanctuary was burned down by white supremacists, the community rebuilt here on this hallowed soil with faith in God and in one another. When black churches were outlaws, this community, this church met in secret for decades with faith in God and in one another. And when evil showed itself in this church basement four years ago, this church again showed that the faith, you showed what faith in actions look like. And when nine souls were taken, Reverend Clementa Pinckney, Reverend Shonda Coleman Singleton, Cynthia Hurd, Susie Jackson, Ethel Lance, the Reverend DePayne Middleton Doctor, Tawanza Sanders, the Reverend Daniel Simmons Sr., and Myra Thompson. This community, this church showed us how not to allow hate when it comes into our lives, to take root in our souls. Polly Shepherd, Felicia Saunders, Jennifer Pinckney, and all of the family and loved ones of those who were taken, you showed us the freedom, the liberty that comes with grace and in forgiveness. And you granted The entire community, the freedom, showed the whole country, the liberty and the redemption that comes through love. That is who we are. That is the American story. That is the common aspiration that we must cling to in times of wretchedness and pain and agony and hurt. It's with faith in God, in one another, and in who we can be that we come here together today, not because of hate, but because of love. And I cannot separate the office I seek from who I am. But this is not a political moment. I'm not here today to ask for a vote. I'm here today to ask If we, again, as a nation, have the collective resolve to change the reality we live in, I'm here today to ask if we have it in ourselves to tell a renewed, new story, an honest story about our nation, because we know the truth will set us free. We know that these are not problems that will just go away inevitably. This is a hard and and painful, and difficult work, it will take sacrifice and struggle, but that's the nature of love. We are here today because of our ancestors showing this kind of sacrifice, this kind of love, because of those who joined together across lines of separation to join in pursuit of our common national aspiration. They did what was difficult because they had faith in God, in each other and in a bolder, broader, more inclusive, patriotism. For patriotism is love of country, but you can't love your country unless you love your fellow country, man and woman, all of them. <clears throat> and when you seek to lead in your community, in your church, in your city, in your country, in your nation, you got to know you can't lead the people if you don't love the people, all the people. We now must have the courage to turn to each other, to join together. We must reaffirm our common bonds in the face of those who every day seek to rip us asunder. We must actively affirm our love in the face of this rising hate of our day. We must now dedicate ourselves, as our ancestors did, to being freedom fighters. For liberty is one of the most sacred of all of our civic values. We must be freedom fighters. We must dedicate ourselves to freedom again. Now, we in this generation, that freedom fight, that is our national test those who peddle hate at home and abroad, those who seek to pit us against each other, we must be freedom fighters. We must know, now struggle to put more indivisible back into our one nation under God. We must be freedom fighters. We now must labor to do the difficult, labor to do the difficult. We must be freedom fighters. We must stand together and work together and struggle together for a new American freedom in our generation. Freedom from fear, freedom from violence, freedom from hatred, freedom to seek, freedom to prosper, freedom to dream America anew again. Once and for all, let us be the land of the free. There is only one way to get there. And that's together. Only one way to win with the power, the healing, and the salvation we find in love. Let us proclaim that we can be a nation in our generation, to sing the songs of our answers, to proclaim that we are going to be the generation that truly will be free at last. Thank you for having me here. God bless you, and God bless America. To those who would tear the world down, we will defeat you. This is our moment. This is our time. To those who seek peace and security, we support you. Yes, we can. And to all. It won't well, beat you to it your knees you. and keep you there permanently permanently, permanently, permanently. You, me, nobody, nobody is going to hit as hard as life. Ask not what your country can do for you. I have a
1: dream. Ask what you can do for your country. My poor little children. Yes, we can. a depression. In this lifetime, you don't have to prove nothing to nobody except yourself. It ain't about, it ain't about
2: how hard you, you hit. It's about how, it's
1: hard, about you how hard
2: you can keep, keep moving forward. forward. How, much how much you can much take, you can take, take keep and keep moving forward. forward. That's how winning is done. Welcome to Public, public Access America. America. Yes, we can. yes, we can. Now on Instagram and SoundCloud. He wanted to run out of that tunnel for my dad. On Twitter. Apple Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, the Stitcher Smoke Radio, Radio and more. Yes, we can. Public yes, we can. Access Public America. Access. History in the making. History. History. Making history in the making.